welcome to uh, this lecture on a very fine summer's evening. It's great to see so many of you here. Um, my name is Mike Savage. I'm Professor of Sociology here at the LSE, and I'm one of the directors, a co-director of the International Inequalities Institute, which is hosting this lecture tonight. It's a huge a pleasure and privilege to welcome Branko Milanovic. Many of you will be familiar with him. He's one of the clutch of uh, world-leading economists who really put the issue of inequality at the centre of public debate. Um, and he's probably, of all, if you think about his peers, who are also focusing on inequality, people like Joe Stiglitz and uh, Thomas Piketty, uh, I think Branko is famous for treating inequality seriously in a global Way. So he's actually trying to go beyond simply comparing nations and he's trying to think about inequality as a global phenomenon. Enormously ambitious work, um, both in terms of data and measurement and analysis. And he also has an extremely rich um, intellectual hinterland um, in exploring these topics. So formally, he's senior scholar at the Luxembourg Income Centre and visiting presidential professor at the Graduate Centre, City University of New York, I should say right at the beginning that there will be a chance for him to sign the book. If any of you want to um, buy the book, it should be available outside after the lecture, and he will be available to sign it. So um, with no more ado, I'll welcome Branko to the stage. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Mike, thank you very much for this introduction. Thanks a lot for the invitation. And of course, I have to thank everybody for having come on a very beautiful day in the evening where you can actually spend that evening very sort of nicely and profitably outside sitting in a restaurant and you would be, for, instead of that, for subjected to a lecture for about 34, 35 to 40 minutes and then we will open for the Q&A. So once again, thank you very much. So I do hope that actually it does uh, provide you with some insights and interesting things that you might actually want to first learn and secondly, maybe to use in your work. So let me then start, if I first have to start to seeing how am I going to move to the next slide, which is, uh, is it there? Oh, oh somebody's yes, already, yes, uh, how did you do that? <laughs> oh, actually, yeah, okay, good. Okay. It's, it's very high tech, yeah. <laughs> uh, so as you, well, let me just go. Uh, the, the topic is inequality in the age of globalization. As Mike said, actually, before, uh, my entire lecture and actually most of my work is uh, dealing with global inequality. So I have to start, I know that it's kind of boring, but I have to start actually with a few definitions first so that we know what we are talking about. Global obviously means that it covers the entire world. Inequality is inequality of income. So I don't deal with actually other types of inequalities which are extremely important, like for example inequality of wealth, which has really become a bigger and bigger topic. And there are other, uh, you know, gender inequality, racial inequality, there are many other inequalities that I will not deal with. So I would deal simply with income. That income is defined 
essentially through household surveys and its household income divided by the number of people living in a household. So it is what is called in a somewhat kind of a uh, counterintuitive way, it's called household per capita income. So it's actually income of the household divided by the number of people in the household. So this would be really the unit. And the data for that, of course, are available in household surveys and the, the challenge there was, it was actually, there was a double challenge. First, historically, we did not have that many countries that conducted regular surveys. So we could, I will show you in a minute, we actually have some guesswork about like how global inequality looked even two centuries ago. But in reality, we can really start uh, uh, having fairly, fairly good data, not ideal data, but okay data by mid-1980s. And this is because three things happened like mid-1980s and late-1980s. First, many more countries in Africa started actually producing household surveys. And of course, I was lucky in those days that I was in the World Bank in a unit which actually dealt with household surveys. Secondly, that's the unit which produces this famous $1, which now is $1.9 per person per day poverty line. So, So first, Africa became much better covered, although still insufficiently well. Secondly, the Soviet Union started producing, actually not producing, but releasing the data which they had, and then the country uh, disintegrated, not because of the data, but for other reasons. Uh, And then we had, of course, data from 15 additional countries, and they actually are doing annual service now. And thirdly, China, which had a hiatus during the Cultural Revolution and until 1984, also came on board. With Chinese data, if there were questions towards the end, I would be very happy to answer because China is obviously, in terms of population and what happened, and you will hear the story tonight, is the most important country for me. But it's also the country with least good data of all the countries that they have in the sample. So I have always to point this out. I hope they all listen so they would get, uh, you know, shamed by this and eventually would, would actually release the data. But they have been very, very sort of economic with... Uh, as they say, economic with truth, but in this case, economic with the data. So these are the things which happened in the 1980s. Uh, And that's why we actually could have uh, better data from that period onwards. So let me then sort of, well, you know, obviously I have to make a little bit of a publicity for my book, you know. Uh, A lot of that is based here, but there is much more even. So the, the brief structure of the talk is that I'll start with global inequality, which I define now. And then I would mention a couple of technical problems. And I will do that because many of them, they seem technical, but in reality, they are something that you can relate, everybody can relate very well. And I will tell you immediately what is the biggest technical problem is inclusion of the top 1% or people who are very rich, who are uh, um, less and less likely and more reluctant to participate in surveys and to actually reveal their income, although uh, you know, when you're being interviewed in a survey, they don't ask you anything about, uh, they don't ask you your name, they, it's anonymous, but, you know, there is still great reluctance, greater reluctance than in the past to do that. And then I would talk about what has now become quite uh, well-known, the, the elephant graph. I have always to finish with the elephant graph. People feel unhappy if I don't explain it, although they, there is nothing new because most people have seen it already and know. But, uh, and then there are issues which I will not cover and which I think are important, which are political issues, that, in my opinion, are derived essentially from the global inequality or the topic of inequality as I sort of see it. So let me then start with 
sort of some key developments. Now, this is quite a striking graph because it shows you, don't regard now, don't look at the green line for a minute, look at the blue line first. What it does, it's over time, the horizontal axis is time, the vertical axis is the Gini coefficient. Now, the Gini coefficient is a measure of inequality, and many of you know that it ranges from zero, which means that everybody theoretically has the same income, to a number of 100, where one person has the entire income. Now, in real world in the countries, it ranges from about 28, approximately that would be the lowest level, to something 60 plus. So that's kind of a range, you know. Countries at 60 are, you know, countries like Colombia, which now is probably the, the, probably the most unequal country in the world with Honduras and a few other Central American countries, Namibia and so on, and countries that are very equal, like Central European countries and the Nordics at 28, approximately. So that's the, the normal range. I like to present it always in Europe because I, I tell people, think of this like a Celsius degrees temperature, and today I think it comes, although it's not an ideal today because everybody is complaining that it was too hot and it's only like about 30 plus degrees, and 30, the, the 30 Gini points is relatively low inequality, uh, but it is, imagine how it is if you sort of take this as a comparison, comparison think how it is when you are 50 or 55, so it's, it's really unbearable. And, and that would be inequality levels in Latin America. Now, the blue line shows you the same, that Gini coefficient for the world, which is calculated exactly the same way that you would have calculated the Gini coefficient for the UK. Essentially, the idea, every individual in the world counts as, a, as one. You, as I explained before, you take their household income, you divide it by number of people, and you assign to each individual member of the household that income. And then you calculate an overall inequality. Now, what is important to notice in this blue line, first that it starts in, the, the first year is 1820. It's based on the work by Bourguignon and Morrison, and starts at nine, nine, in 1820, after the Napoleonic Wars. And as you can see, it actually starts going up and up and up and up. So this is an important thing, because by the latter part of the 20th century, as you can see, it kind of plateaus. Now, the other two lines, which are above, are the lines based on my work and most recently a paper, still unpublished paper by Lahoti, Jayadev, and Reddy, who find exactly the same results as, as uh, Christoph Lackner and I. So there are really two sort of uh, lines there which are very similar. They basically uh, overlap. And there you can see also that plateauing. Now, don't be confused by the shift factor. That was due to the uh, different use of different purchasing power parity, which I will explain in a minute. But just don't think of this. Think of the shape of the curve. So you would notice that the shape of the curve is up and up and up. Then there was a plateau around the latter part of the 20th century, and then there is a decline. So that essentially gives you, in a very rough way, the story of global inequality. The uh, global inequality started rising, essentially, uh, to the extent that we know, uh, after the Industrial Revolution. It is a product of the Industrial Revolution. And it is a prog product of the Industrial Revolution because some countries, which then also had large increase in population, became richer and richer. And if you sort of think of only three parts of the world, Western Europe and North America as one, China as the second, and India as the third, the, uh, because they, of course, include, uh, uh, in those days, they actually included two well, more than 50% of the world population today, and about that, probably more in those days. Uh, you essentially had the developments in the first part, 
Western Europe and North America, which actually gradually sort of pulled together the entire distribution. So it was not only development and growth, which actually only benefited the top 1%, but became also spread down the income distribution, whereas these other two parts of the world, Asia essentially, and meaning China and India in particular, remained at the same level of income or actually even declined. So it was the product of the Industrial Revolution, and it continued growing as the differences between the countries increased. Now, I'm not going to put only the emphasis on these differences between the countries, because what was also happening is inequality within countries did change. And as we know, for example, in the case of the UK, it kept on rising probably until 1860 or 1870 of the, you know, obviously, end of the 19th century, and then started this long decline, which kind of ended uh, in 1970s. So there was also within national change. But in the broad sort of a picture that I'm drawing here, that within national change was relatively small element of the overall change. And why I want to emphasize that this is relatively small element, because we are, what we are now witnessing of the decline is essentially sort of a new technological revolution that is rebalancing the world and that is actually making the countries that started in 1970s or 80s being very poor converging with incomes of the rich world. And this is why we have this really very substantial decline, particularly now in the first part of the first decade and a half of the 21st century. So I'm not saying that's the entire story, but it's the most of the story, and it's actually easy to understand that why we have the decline in global inequality is because we have really high growth rates among populous and relatively poor countries. So that's the story. Now, why that story is important also? Because it makes you, I believe, sort of reflect about the present moment, not only within the present, like last five years, ten years, or from the crisis to today, but makes you reflect that within the longer term of two centuries. Essentially, you have two, you know, technological revolutions that have taken place. They have rebalanced the economic power of the Euro-Asian continent, including, of course, America, if you, I mean, North America in that, and they have a, a, a predictable effects on the distribution of income among individuals. So I think it is actually, that kind of brings out the most recent period in its historical context. Now, to, to, uh, I forgot one thing which I wanted to say, is that actually in order to do all these calculations, you have to convert incomes uh, between the countries, you have to use some numeraire which would allow you to convert incomes from India into some general world incomes. What is done is, of course, is, is, uh, it's, we use so-called PPP, Purchasing Power Parity, which means it's a large empirical exercise. Actually, it's the largest empirical exercise done by economics ever, which measures price level in different countries. So if in India the price level is one-third of the price level of the, of the United States, then obviously you have to actually take Indian incomes, convert rupees into dollars, and then boost these incomes by three times in order to get to the actual purchasing power or welfare of Indians. So in other words, don't go into all this. I will not go into these details, but just I want to give you an idea that we are actually adjusting for the lower price level in poor countries. Moreover, for China, India, Indonesia, what we do, we divide country into rural and urban areas and, of course, apply different PPPs because uh, urban areas have, of course, higher price level than, than rural areas. Ideally, 
you would like to do that for actually uh, for many more units because it's very clear that income, le- income that you need to have in London to be at a given level of welfare is not the same as income that you would have to have in a, some you know, less, re- less uh, uh, rich or less unequal uh, or a part of the UK. So ideally that should be done like that, but currently what we are doing is actually doing by country, I mean country by country, so that's the adjustment that we do. So these adjustments are then taken into account. Once again, the first adjustment is that per capita, household per capita income, which is then assigned to every individual, and the second adjustment is adjustment for the differences in price levels between the countries. So then we have the picture like that, and then the reason why the blue line differs from my line there is that that, that was based on somewhat old-fashioned 1990 PPPs, and that we now need to recalculate that into 2011, whereas the new lines are already recalculated. But what will happen is simply there will be a shift element. So basically, maybe one time, when, maybe next time when I come, I would have done that, and then basically you would have the, the one line. But the shape of the line would be as I explained it. Now, just for comparative purposes, I have also the U.S. here. So as you can see, U.S. is you know, following very similar pattern that many rich countries have. You have had in the 19th century an increase in inequality, then a decline. There is a very long decline uh, all the way to the 19. 1970, actually in the U.S., I think the lowest point was 1979, and then the increase of inequality. So what is interesting there is that actually in that graph you see the world, uh, how the world inequality has changed, but you see also how the inequalities in the rich countries have followed a very different pattern. So you have within national inequalities in the most recent period that have generally gone up, in the US, UK, Russia, China, India, almost everywhere, but global inequality for the reasons that I mentioned before has gone down. Now, the, the very fact that it has gone down is uh, uh, driven by, uh, as I explained, by the diminishing differences in mean country incomes. When I say diminishing, it's very important to, to be very clear that what I mean is that these differences are getting smaller. It does not mean that these differences are small. These differences are still extremely large, and when we come to discuss, or maybe during Q&A, when we discuss question of migration, it is these differences that would play, in my opinion, crucial role in explaining migration today. But these differences are now getting smaller. Now, they are you know, these locational differences. So what this graph shows is takes like snapshot of total global inequality in three periods of time, like 1850, three uh, points in time, 1850, 2011, and then a projection, which is not based on my numbers, projection up to 2050, and maybe you could even extend it further. And what it shows you that Originally, in the 19th century, you had location, which is total inequality due to the differences in mean country incomes. Think of the fact that Poland is poorer than UK, that, uh, uh, me- uh, that Mexico is poorer than the US, Morocco is poorer than, than Spain. This between country difference is very important, but they were about they were accounting for about 50 to 55% of total inequality, almost as much as within national inequalities. So the gray part is so-called class, just to make it simple. That's the summation of all inequalities within nations. So think in those cases of rich landholders, poor peasants, rich capitalists, poor workers. So they would be all in the gray area. 
and differences between the countries, they would be in the purple area. So what happened with uh, the you know, uh, evolution uh, during the next century and a half was that the location element, for the reasons that I explained in the previous graph, actually sort of exploded. So it became extremely important. And then to give you an idea, it became more important, globally speaking, what country you're born in than whether you're born to the rich or the poor parents. That's how you should think of that. In other words, you should ask yourself uh, how much it would be for me worth, like suppose I'm a median income person in, a, in an African country or a median income person in the UK. How much would I gain from being born as a median income person or median income parents from median income parents in the UK versus Mali, for example? Is it more important for me than being born to actually uh, 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 rich parents in the, U in the UK versus the mid, uh, median income parents in the UK? So in, in reality, what happened is that the globally speaking, this purple part actually expanded very significantly. And why I used Franz Fanon in the title? Because I, I needed somebody who actually seized very well uh, that moment, because if you think of the 1850, and obviously Marx did not have these numbers, but if you thought uh, that of you were presenting, if you were to present him his numbers, and if you thought actually of his essential idea of proletarian solidarity, it had uh, a meaning within the world of 1850, because poor people in most countries were about equally poor. Rich people, maybe they were poor, obviously richer in richer countries, but the differences between poor people were relatively small between the countries. And that's reflected in the importance of the class element. But by the end of the 20th century, or by beginning of the 21st century, that situation has changed. And I think somebody who caught that element very well, where actually the gap between the West and the rest was probably at its peak, was Franz Fanon. And as you, people who study, of, uh, you know, the Marxist theory or, you know, changes which have happened and, you know, imperialism, decolonization, all of that, know that in the 60s and the 70s, what was a very popular view, even Mao Zedong actually proposed, proposed that, is that the West was essentially global bourgeoisie and the third world was the global proletariat. And that was the moment which actually corresponded to the data that we have, where really the bulk of inequality was due to your location. Now, it's still the case that, it is still, that it, the bulk of inequality is due to location, but because of phenomenal growth in Asia over the last 40 years, that element has significantly shrunk. And it is the shrinkage of that element that explains the decline of global inequality. So it's very important to realize that global inequality which is going down is going down because of the shrinkage of that purple element, whereas the, the other element, which is class, is increasing because inequality, as I said before, in China, U.S., U.K., and elsewhere, is gone up. So if we have the shrinkage, we, it comes entirely from the convergence. From the convergence, meaning increase, a higher rate of growth on per capita basis of relatively poor and populous countries. And if you were to project that for the next century, then you would actually have further, if you believe that uh, poor and populous countries, like I suppose in the future, Ethiopia, Indonesia, Sudan, Burma, and so on, will really catch up as well, then you would have further shrinkage of that element. But we don't know what will happen to the class element. So if we don't have within nation states a plateauing of inequality, but an increase of inequality, we might have the increase in the gray component, 
while the, the purple component goes down. So we might be then, at the end of the maybe this century, we may be back to the situation in terms of the distribution of inequality between, uh, between uh, the part due to differences in country incomes and part due to inequality within nation states to a situation that existed in 1820 or 1850. So this is the, the sort of a long-run view of the changes in inequality. Now, I have to say there are two elements there that I cannot ex- now go into greater detail, but they are uh, worth keeping in mind. First of all, the role of China. The role of China was absolutely crucial, as you all know, for the reduction of global poverty. I think up to year 2000, uh, I think 92% of global reduction of poverty was due entirely to China. It is also true that actually 2000, uh, the, 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 the relative stability of global inequality was entirely due to China. In other words, if you were to, China, to take China out, global inequality would have gone up. So China was absolutely crucial. After that, we now have like two big, as I call them, like big two sumo wrestlers fighting global inequality, and this is India and China, which changes now the story very significantly because you don't have all eggs in one basket for the reduction of global inequality. You do have now not only India, but of course other Asian countries growing very fast, and that means that even if something were to happen in China, we would still have a momentum from the other Asian countries. Now, I'm not going to discuss what will happen, might not happen in China. I'm just saying that it's obviously better to have more uh, large countries growing very fast for the reduction of global inequality and poverty than everything depending on one country. Moreover, the, the issue of China is very interesting because China has grown so fast that now the, media, the person with the median income in China is above the median income in the world. So at some point, and that point is around now, China would be uh, beginning to contribute to global inequality. So in other words, while China was a sort of a deductor of global inequality, eating up global inequality as it was going up the global income distribution, it now will start actually very small, in a small doses, but it will still start adding to global inequality. So that's the first point which really one needs to keep in mind when you think about projections. The second point is that we really cannot have any, I believe, sort of a reasonable view about what will happen to large countries in Africa like Nigeria, Sudan, Congo, South Africa, Ethiopia, and so forth. Uh, Their experiences so far have been extremely heterogeneous, and as Africa is the continent with the largest uh, increase in population in the next 50 or 100 years, the role of Africa will become much greater in the calculations that I've shown you. So that's really, I think, in my opinion, a big unknown. And the first one is the the reversal of the role of China, which will come if China continues with the growth that it has been actually experiencing in, in the recent period. So this is essentially... I will go very quickly over that because I already said whatever is, is written on this slide, is that essentially if you want to think about the, the long run, you should really think of uh, what happens to the within-country distributions because they would determine your gray area. You should think whether there is a generally country income convergence because the convergence would reduce the purple area and in particular you should think what will what is happening with incomes of the really large countries because clearly if China uh, grows by 8% it's not the same as if Luxembourg grows by 8% or to take an, uh, like a you know Chad or a or poor country which is much smaller so this is what uh, uh, 
So the, the same story, and I will go quickly over this graph because I, I don't want to take too much time, but the same story is also sort of uh, reflected here. You, you know, the, the blue line, you can ignore it for the moment because it simply shows the in same inequalities on the vertical axis and time is on the horizontal axis. The, the blue line shows the convergence or divergence between country incomes where you don't have population waiting. So basically, each country costs the same. As you can see, essentially, there have been a divergence of country incomes. But the red line goes exactly in the opposite direction, and it goes very strongly in the opposite direction from mid-70s, so basically from 1978 when China starts growing. So it is that red line which shows the convergence of country incomes when they are weighted by population, which in turn is driving the dots that you can see on the top, and these dots are the same dots that you have seen in the previous graph. They are the dots about global inequality. So again, this is just a different way of showing that it was really the convergence of the uh, populous and relatively poor countries that has been the, the key force for the reduction of global inequality. So. Uh, let me just then, so before I go to and move to the, because I know my time is kind of running, well, really very, very fast. Uh, but uh, 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 before I actually go and, and show the, the, the elephant graph, I want to show one interesting development, which is sort of not obvious uh, until you sort of do the calculations and, and look at that. Uh, the red line is the decline in the, in the Gini coefficient global inequality. So we have already seen the global inequality is on the decline in the last, uh, uh, in the last uh, 15 or approximately 15 years, and I will put a caveat on that when I talk about the uh, lack of coverage of the top 1%, because we have to be a little bit careful in statements that it's going down, because we're simply missing more and more of very top income. But what was also interesting, the median income, which is essentially driven by Asian countries is rising very fast. But when you have the rise of the median income, that's actually very good news for the world because the world not only is getting richer at the mean, but is getting richer at the median, which as you know is the 50th percentile of the world. Uh, the, the unusual sort of, and not such a good thing, is that if you're below the median and you're actually not growing as fast as Asia, you are actually falling behind that median more and more. So what the blue line shows is if you were to calculate world poverty rate, as we calculate, for example, for the European Union, by taking as poor everybody whose income is below one half of the median. Because think of the median being driven by China. So that median goes really up very quickly, which is actually very good news for the world. But if you are below the median, and if you are not China, you're actually sort of sort of being left more and more behind, so the, the poverty rate, or rather the relative poverty rate, is going up. And that's an interesting phenomenon because it shows you how you actually can have, uh, I will show that in a minute, you can, you can have a development of very high sort of inequality-driven increase of incomes at the very top, which generally you can say is not a, it's not a development that maybe you're extremely happy about that, you know, you have sort of development of plutocracy at the top. You have very hopeful and good development of about one and a half billion people around the middle of the income distribution who have become richer and richer. 
but you also have an increased relative poverty of poor people who are not catching up with the world median. So you have a very, uh, the, the problem with inequality and with distributions is that we tend, and we have in the Gini coefficient and other measures, to, uh, to uh, explain them by using one synthetic indicator which really represents the entire distribution. And as you can see, it is really not sufficient. It's actually, it's a good measure. I use the Gini coefficient a lot, but it misses lots of points because the movements in the different parts of the distribution can be very different and particularly when you look at the world as a whole they, they indeed are. So you can have again, you can have an increase at the top, huge rises towards the middle of the distribution and an increase in relative poverty at the same time. And on top of that in most of the countries of the world you have increases in their own national inequalities. So this is um, I will not uh, discuss this graph, which is actually a cool graph because it shows you the global income distribution as a curve, somewhat smooth, it is true, but for the first time, maybe in a long time, maybe in, in century, we actually have this global distribution that looks more or less like distributions look within each individual countries. You know, in the past, Danny Kwa, actually, who was here at LSE, famously talked of the world of, of twin peaks. And the distribution then, in the past, looked at actually there was a very huge peak at very low level of income. Uh, lots of poor people, essentially. And then there was really an emptiness in the middle. <clears throat> and then you had a small peak, which was essentially composed of the rich countries. Well, that emptiness in the middle, and I'll show you in another slide afterwards, has now really been... I'm not saying that it's been re, uh, uh, sort of totally eliminated, but there is much. I mean, there is more substance, there is more mass, if you will, in the middle than it used to be, and that's essentially what has happened over the last 25 years or 30 years. And just one more point on that: it is uh, we maybe have become blasé, and not we may not think very much about that. But that that uh, 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 much greater uh, mass in the middle is a very very unique and quite extraordinary phenomenon because in the 25 or 30 years it has really changed entirely the shape of the distribution and it has produced something that I call the greatest reshuffle of relative incomes probably after the Industrial Revolution because what has happened is that you had groups of people I take oftentimes as an example the third this urban decile of China which in 1988 was better off than only about 700 or 800 million people in the world. Well, by the end of this period, 2011-2013, actually, that's the most recent period that I have, they are better off than 2.3 billion people. So it was a huge reshuffle. You have actually people leapfrogging, um, some of them leapfrogging enormously. And you think of this as a deck of cards. So your position was somewhere relatively low in the deck of cards. You might have been at the, you know, uh, something like the 15th percentile of the world, and then you went up and became uh, the 50th percentile of the world. So that's an incredible change in a relatively short period of time. Now, that also implies, because we are talking about the relative positions, that also implies that somebody who might have been at the 70, uh, 75th percentile actually went down and became 72nd percentile. So it is something that actually I will show you in, the, in the, probably the last slide, which would be the, the, well, I have to sort of skip this one. 
Well, maybe I will just show you this one too. Uh, the, because that's a kind of a cool slide which uh, illustrates the differences between country incomes but also uh, uh, locates people within their income distribution. So let me just show you. For the, let me start with the United States. What you have here on the horizontal axis, you have position of people in their country's distribution. So if you're, for example, at the 50th percentile in the U.S., you would be on the horizontal axis there between 40 and 50 in the middle. And then on the vertical axis, you have their positions in the global income distribution. Obviously, until we had micro data for global income distribution, we could not have the, the vertical axis. We just didn't know the vertical axis. And then if you are actually in the U.K. or the U.S., and let's suppose that your income is exactly at the median, if I were to ask you where would you guess, where would you be in the global income distribution? Of course, when you think about that, you should tell me that you have to be higher than the median because UK being a rich country or the United States being a rich country, uh, it's very uh, sort of unlikely that, or maybe impossible even, although possibly, I think, technically, that you would be at the, the, the median in the U.S. and not be above the median globally. Because obviously you, you are, you're in a rich country and the, the world is much poorer than your own country, so you have to be higher. And that's exactly what the graph shows you. So when you start with the, on, the, on the left, on the bottom, around number one or two, you're the poorest percentile or the second poorest percentile in the United States, but you're better off than about 50% of the people in the world. And then as you go up and up, obviously within the U.S. income distribution, you become clearly uh, richer and richer within your country, but you also become richer and richer worldwide. So at the very end, you have about 12% of richest Americans who are part of the global top 1%. So you, at the very end, you can see that line for the United States is kind of flat. So everybody who is in the 88th and 89th and above percentile is part of the global top 1%. And the story for many rich countries is similar, but the striking fact is that actually when you contrast that with poor countries like India, and although this slide itself, I'll show you another slide with India, just it is really underestimates Indian incomes to, to some extent. The striking fact is not that poorest people in India are among the poorest people in the world. That's actually something that everybody would expect. But what is interesting is that, that you would have to go up to the 85th percentile in India in order to reach the income level of the poorest Americans. So that shows you still how large are these inter- country differences, despite the fact that what we were saying before, they are feeding the decline of global inequality and they are, of course, the major uh, engine of reduction of inequality. So then, of course, I do the, the China. Uh, those days for 2008, we had microdata. So China obviously dominates India. You can see actually even Chinese income distributions towards the top being reaching towards the really the, the global top 1%. Remember that the percentile in China or India is 12 to 13 million people. So that's the average income of that group. If I were to break them down into smaller groups, like, for example, in the U.S., that one percentile is about 3 million people, then, of course, that very top would actually reach higher than on this particular slide. But what this slide does is also shows you Russia, is, as you can see, above China. But what is interesting is if instead of Russia, I took uh, urban China. Urban China dominates now uh, Russia. So it's actually, urban China would actually go along the way, the same way, more or less, like Russia. And uh, or, uh, rural China would be somewhere between the China that you see here and India. 
And finally, the country that I often use as a kind of a country that mimics the world is a country that, like, like South Africa, I've used Brazil in this case, but that country, that country has people who are poorest in that country and who are at the level of income of the poorest in the world, but then you have people who are in the middle class who are actually quite well off, globally speaking, you have people at the 80th percentile, 90th percentile, and also people in the global top 1%. So in that sense, the, the, the world would be like a 45-degree line and very unequal countries with people who are very poor and people who are uh, rich, uh, uh, as they used to call it, uh, Bell India or Brazil, are actually all coexisting in, in one country. Uh, more recent data for 2011, I just want to show you that because the position of India is now better than in the previous graph. It is using income data. It's using more recent data than the one before. But what, what is missing here, and the reason why I didn't show you that graph in the first place, was China, for which, as I mentioned before, we are having more and more problems with, with access to the microdata. Because you cannot do that unless you have microdata. Because if you have data for only a couple of uh, fractiles, and unless you want them to impose distributions on top of that and make other assumptions, you just cannot derive the numbers. And then, of course, what the, the striking part in, when you do I mean, graphs like that is that you end up with, uh, with, country, with uh, situations where you have fairly egalitarian and very rich European countries like the Netherlands or Denmark, where the bottom of their income distribution is at the 62nd or whatever percentile of the world. And when, they are, when you compare them with poor countries in Africa, you almost have no overlap of the two distributions. In other words, that doesn't mean that nobody from that poor country has an income that is higher than somebody in the Netherlands. It simply means there is not sufficient number of people that they would represent 1% of that country that would have an income higher than the bottom of the Netherlands. So you could actually then draw the distribution of, for example, of, of uh, what is the Mali here, going like this, and where it ends, you would actually have the beginning of the Dutch income distribution. So that was a, an illustration of this. So finally, two important, uh, uh, actually three important technical issues which I will not discuss, but I have to mention them. The, the first problem is the PPP, uh, which I explained before, and as you have seen in the first graph, the 1990 PPPs and more recent 2011 PPPs are different. Uh, currently, there is a new exercise, 2017 exercise, but we had problems in the past with large changes in relative prices, and you can imagine what it does when you have like 40% change in relative prices in China. It means simply that everybody's income goes up or down depending if the relative prices are shown to be higher or lower, and that obviously has a huge impact on global poverty and has huge impact on global inequality. Uh, I'm told actually from reliable sources that actually 2017 numbers would come fairly close to 2011, so I hope that we will not have this variation that is simply due to the changes in the estimates of the price level. Second point is that something which has been mentioned before, uh, not in my talk, but it's been studied a lot, is that we had cases, in this case, the, the cause the celebre is India, where you had significant differences between the growth rate of national consumption for national accounts and consumption or income nowadays from household surveys. And that was, in my opinion, 
connected with the third point, and in the paper that I did with Christoph Lackner, we linked these two points, and the third point, as you can see here, is the inadequate coverage of the top 1%. So I believe that these two points are linked. In other words, what we are observing in national accounts, we are observing higher increase in mean income than what we get from household service, but the bulk of that difference comes from our uh, sort of uh, lower coverage or inadequate coverage of the top 1%. So I would just simply like to mention that this is a problem that we have been grappling a lot. Uh, uh, the, the contribution of Piketty and Tony Atkinson has been very crucial in that respect because they have focused our attention to the top 1%. They are used fiscal data, so fiscal data, the definition of fiscal income is different from the disposable income that I use here, but nevertheless it really shows that there was a very large uh, uh, increase in the top 1%, which not in all cases were we able to actually see in household survey data. And just to give you, this is not a slide that is in my current work, but I've actually done it. You know, this is the, the usual sort of a pattern that we see. This is the, I did uh, uh, household survey data in red as similar in definition to the fiscal income used by uh, uh, Piketty and size in their work on the United States. And as you can see here, there was always a difference between the red line and the uh, blue line. This is the share of the top, the top 1% in the United States. But as you can not notice, towards the latter period, after like approximately 2000, the gap becomes larger. And this is this issue of the underestimation of the top 1%. So basically, uh, uh, even if we make the two data sources as close to each other as possible because the definitions of income and definitions of recipient units are different, but if we make them very close, as close as possible in definitions, we still have that significant gap and probably an underestimation of income in household service. But that's not always the case. For example, I've done it for a number of countries, but I'll show you, for example, Norway here, where actually the two move together. So this is nevertheless a thing to keep in mind in the paper that I did with Christoph Lackner. We actually link these two problems of the, of the lower rate of growth of income from household service than in national accounts to the underestimation of the top 1%, did some kind of what is called Pareto adjustment, and then in that case, and that's an important point, the decline in global inequality, which I've shown you before, which is very unambiguous, becomes much more ambiguous. In other words, rather than having this very significant dip of about three Gini points, which is a very big number, you have a dip which may be about one Gini point. So last caveat, we do have a decline in global inequality, after about approximately year 2000, and I think there is fairly inconvertible evidence that it did actually happen, but we have to keep in mind that we are probably overestimating the decline uh, because of inadequate coverage of the top 1%. So it could be the decline is less than what we uh, observe without any adjustment. But of course, the difference is, is that uh, the, the difficulty is that you do have to make adjustments of an, uh, a variable or a quantity that is unknown to you. And that problem is compounded even by another problem, which is fiscal evasion and fiscal fraud, which, of which we have become much more aware of thanks to the work of, of uh, Gabriel Zuckman and others, where we actually know that something probably equal to almost 1% of the global GDP in terms of income is being received from monies that are being kept 
in fiscal havens, and which are not obviously included in fiscal data because obviously these people would not be keeping them in you know, jurisdictions where they hide them and they keep them there precisely not to pay taxes at home. And of course, they are not included in surveys. So we have that third layer uh, which I think we should study. So when I say th- third layer is the first layer, I see the household survey data which cover the entire distribution but probably do not cover the top 1% or top 2% very well and the bottom uh, probably several percentage points. Then the second layer is much better effort by using fiscal and administrative data of covering the top 1% and the third layer on the cake is actually our ability um, hopefully in the future, to actually assign even income that is hidden um, in tax haven probably to the top 1% by each country, because I think it's unlikely that that income belongs to people who are below that level. Uh, I think, well, should I finish? I just want to just show this last slide. I will be very brief on this. Can I just have it in one, two minutes, because many people have seen it. It is uh, the, the evolution of inequality between 1988 and 2008. I would show you on the slide 2008. I'll show you in a minute also 2011. There are not huge differences between the two. The basic idea here is on the horizontal axis you have people along the global income distribution, again, from the poorest to the richest. On the vertical axis you calculate their PPP adjusted, as I explained before, change in real income. And what, of course, you notice here and why this kind of particular graph became so popular is that towards the middle of the income distribution, between, like, for example, 40th percentile and 60th percentile, you had really dramatic increases in real income. And what you see here is the mean increase at that point because, of course, there are many more, like, for example, Chinese percentiles and Indonesian percentiles and others have not had 80% increase. That was which is shown on the vertical axis, they had 300%, 400% increases. So there is much more of the underlying increases. This is the mean. And when you look at people who are there, you find that about 90% of people are there from what Angus Madison called the resurgent Asia. And then that was, this would be like my point A, but then, of course, there was a point B where you actually see people who are richer, who are at about 80th percentile in the global income distribution, but where the growth of income was minimal. Uh, and as you can see, the average of that group is almost zero. And uh, the, I mean, when you kind of break down the, the country deciles, or ventiles who are behind that, you find that 70% of people there are from the old OECD countries from the lower parts of income distributions of U.S., Japan, and Germany in particular because these are very large countries. And if you include also the new OECD members, mostly transition countries, then you come to almost 90% of people at that point. And then the last point is that uh, very uh, huge growth uh, in percentage terms of the top 1% income. Now, this is in percentage terms, but of course you would realize that because these people at the top 1% are many times richer than the middle of the income distribution or the median, the gains in, in absolute terms were, absolute, were totally dwarfing the, the gains in the, in the middle of the income distribution. In other words, you had, if you were to take the pie and say, okay, I've got an increase in the pie, what percentage 
of the increase went into the hands of the top 5%. You find that about 50% of the, I think 45 was the exact number, 45% of the increase went into the hands of the top 1%. So of the top uh, 5%, sorry. So in that sense, the percentage gains here uh, somewhat underestimate the, uh, the uh, inequity of the distribution of the gains during the, the era of globalization. So I think I've actually probably exhausted you and uh, to some extent exhausted myself. Uh, so I would actually stop here and I would be very happy to have a discussion now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Branko. Do you want to sit down or stand? stand? Uh, because I might be actually then switching between the slides, I would stand. Stand, yeah. okay. So we have about, uh, stay over half an hour for questions. Um, I suggest we try and get groups of two or three questions to give you the chance to ask. So um, there's some microphones around. So um, you were the first person I saw. Yep. Thank you. My name is Sigrun Davidsdottir. I'm an Icelandic journalist. Um, given that uh, your work has obviously caught a lot of attention, as we can see here tonight, yeah, and the topic of inequality is looms large in the political debate, I would like to hear some of your thoughts on the political debate about inequality. And I know this is a, <laughs> you know, this is a vast subject, but you know, just if you had some comments on that. Okay. Well, well, this is a huge talk, but I will be brief in, in answers because I would like, of course, to people to, I mean, as many people to ask questions as possible. I think that there are three uh, direct implications of this work, and I will not go into derivation or logic of each of them, but I just simply want to point them out. The, the first one is uh, uh, derived directly from what I just said is the rising income of the top that we imperfectly, uh, that we are uh, unable fully to account for, and that has become an issue within nation states, that has become an issue politically because of their control of the political process, and that is linked with plutocracy on one hand or populism on the other hand as a reaction against that. So I think this is something which I think very clearly comes out of this. And even further, you can actually then ask questions uh, if there is this global top 1%, are they now creating a class on their own? Is there a sort of, which has been argued before, that maybe there is much more in common between people who are the global top 1% than they have in common with their own citizens and so on. So I think this is one political issue. The second one is a political philosophy issue, and which I only in, in, indirectly mentioned here, and this is a global inequality of opportunity, because what large differences in mean in country income mean is that a same person born in a uh, relatively poor country has an entirely different life stream of income than a person born in a rich country. Fundamentally speaking, when you talk of the world as a, from the cosmopolitan perspective, it's not different than if you had a person who is actually of different sex or race having automatically much higher income than an equivalent person of a different sex or, 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 or uh, gender. Uh, so, of course, the problem is more difficult because, for example, Rawls addressed the problem indirectly in 1999 in his Law of the, Law of the Peoples, and uh, uh, 
uh, the, the, the issue, of course, is that maybe, as he believed, that if you really were to be cosmopolitan in terms of global inequality, of believing the global inequality of opportunity is not desirable or is something to be fought against, then in that case, you are actually undermining uh, national self-determination. So there are issues there of, of the political philosophy front that m- might actually... Uh, Lead you, but I think the important question on that second point is simply that one we have to ask ourselves: ourselves, does equality of opportunity end at the national border? Because that's really the fundamental question. And the third point is the point of migration, which I like to believe should be considered as a manifestation of the process of globalization, no different than, of course, movement of capital. Labor is just a factor of production, but taking place under the conditions of very uneven mean of, of very uneven mean incomes between the countries and of course a knowledge of these differences so we do have i think that uh, we do need to think of migration not as something which suddenly happened out of the blue but as something which is really sort of embedded in the type of globalization that we have and the last point there it's it's very obvious to me that when you move from eu 15 where you had very homogeneous incomes and for example if you look at eu 15 the gini of these 15 countries is not very different from the gini of each individual country, when you move to EU 28, you have uh, systematic migration pressures due to the fact that mean incomes and incomes of the people are very different. And if you were to actually look at the world as a whole, obviously this difference would be magnified many times. So these are the three, I think, political issues. And uh, I'm sorry, but I would probably need to take another couple of days to to go into. (laughs) And I'm sure many people here have opinions on that. Okay, we've got a question there. Hi, Robert Wade. Thank you for a fascinating lecture. Um, You have talked about income distribution. Do you think that um, uh, trends in the distribution of uh, of wealth rather than income um, would make any qualifications to um, the argument that you've made here? Let's get another couple of questions. Um, Okay. I saw some questions here. Thank you. Uh, So you talked a lot about uh, sort of the different timings of industrial revolutions and different levels of technology sort of being the biggest driver in terms of differences between countries. How much of an impact do you think there's been of major international economic institutions like the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, various trade organizations being established in the U.S. after Second World War and then being run exclusively by... Europeans and, and Americans since then? How much of an impact do you think that's had between countries? Okay, there's one more question over here. Um, my question is, uh, so joining the big works, um, popular works on inequality is also uh, Walter Scheidel, um, historian at Stanford, who you know, argues that we had some great levelers throughout history, that inequality is always sort of on the rise until right. some big catastrophe, some big war happens and, and acts as a great leveler. Um, is that, do, do you take this, this pessimistic view, or can we do more about inequality also within countries? Um, can we sort of tame the beast with redistributive policies? Can I now take this three? Uh, okay, on the first question, I, uh, with Robert, I actually use, obviously, other people's work. I have not done work on, on wealth. My understanding is that actually that uh, the, the first kind of optimistic picture on the global level uh, that you get from income is sort of, uh, how should I say, falsified by wealth. It's actually, in my understanding of the wealth results, 
in the reports of Credit Suisse and others is that actually wealth inequality has increased. And I actually would not be, uh, I don't find that uh, surprising because what I think actually what is happening, what is driving wealth inequality is that very top that we are that uh, we are not capturing well in income. And I also believe what is also happening is that for you know, you don't have most of the people in the world at, no, I mean, you cannot even have at zero income because they would not survive, but you can have lots of people in the world at $2 a day and $4 a day and $6 a day, and actually they're improving going from 6 to 9 or 10, and that's actually a big improvement. But their wealth is tiny. Whether they're at $4, dollars $6, or $15, their wealth is kind of non-existent. So what I think is actually happening, and I'm actually maybe out of my depth there, I think that basically that large increase in of, of income, which reduces income inequality, has very little sort of percolating or trickle-down power on the wealth side. Whereas this large increase in inequality at the top on income has very strong effect on the wealth. So that would be my, uh, as, as I say, my sort of reading of the, of the wealth literature, but I'm not somebody who, who knows that well. On, on the question about the, the, role of the role of the international organizations and technology and so on, let me just put it like that in my book. Actually, I discuss, they're essentially, not that I discuss, but basically Economists have divided into three camps, and obviously some people are with one, you know, foot in one camp, another. But I think basically the three camps are either you explain the change by, techno by the, the, the uh, changes that I discussed by technology, or by openness or globalization, or by policy. And I like to put them as T O and P because it's easy to remember. All the students remember top. These are, these are three explanations, and clearly there, I think actually uh, I'm of the school that believes that all played a crucial role, globalization, and that globalization limited the policy space that countries could actually play with. Uh, it does not mean that the policy space was non-existent, but I think it was limited by the forces of globalization. Uh, different people have different views. Some people believe that T played a key role, in which case basically you can say, well, they, they see T as kind of a, a mana from heaven on which really policy cannot have an impact, which I believe is not true. I mean, we have works that show that actually policy had an impact on technology, and I think that we can also show that globalization had an impact on technology. In other words, you could implement some technology as, for example, Rachel Baldwin nicely argues in his book, because you had globalization. And uh, uh, so that leads me to the point of P. As I said before, policy, in my opinion, policy space of the countries was limited. But what was the role of the international organizations? I think it's more difficult to say. Obviously, the IMF had policies that were actually, by IMF own description, uh, contributing to the rising inequality in poorer countries where the IMF was involved. It also contributed to the, the rise of inequality and unsustainability in Greece. And as you know now, particularly in the research department, the, 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 the fund has come round to that position and uh, basically has produced some of the uh, you know, groundbreaking papers in, in that area. 
but I am not quite sure what is the connection between these papers and the work in the research department in the fund and the operational side of the fund. So it remains to be seen. You know, optimistically, you can say that the policies might change and they have learned from the previous mistakes. Uh, very cynically, you can say that it is a public relations exercise. So I don't know. Uh, I think the future will, will uh, tell us. Now, on, on Scheidel's point, on, on uh, Scheidel's book, I like the book. I was actually, I read it even before it was published. Uh, Walter is a friend. I, uh, and he's, of course, a great historian, and his historical knowledge is really unparalleled. As you know, he discusses Rome, uh, China, Aztecs, uh, and everybody else in between and uh, before. Uh, but I think he's unduly pessimistic. I think that actually if you take the Western countries, uh, and I have that in my chapter two about the Kuznets waves, uh, this is an incredible development that we have had in, in rich countries over the last, over the century before inequality started going up. Uh, real incomes increased, I had like about eight, nine countries, Italy nine times, UK four times. Uh, U.S., I think, about four, five times. And at the same time, the Gini coefficient was, on average, reduced by 50%. So it's an incredible development, which actually has never happened in history, because we, when we have a China today, which is growing as, at rates which are even higher, it is accompanied by large increases in inequality. So we had, really, in Western countries, huge declines in inequality with large increases in mean income. Now, Walter would tend to explain that by uh, World War I and World War Two, which Piketty also does, which appear in Piketty as exogenous forces. But I believe that, first, I actually have a paper now talking about so-called endogeneity of World War I, linking it to inequality prior to World War I. But more of that on, on Scheudel in particular, I think that we cannot neglect things like development of trade unions, socialist movements, increased uh, education levels, which reduce skill premium, uh, changing bargaining power between capital and labor, which reduce capital share in national income, which were not malign forces. They were all uh, forces of, I mean, what they call benign forces. So I think in that sense, I think that, that Scheidel is too pessimistic, and then his reading, and I'll stop there, can be both, the reading of his book may be both right-wing and left-wing. The, the general right-wing reading is then, look, we can do absolutely nothing because the only way that we can reduce inequality is to create a war or have a huge revolution like, you know, uh, Khmer Rouge and, like, take London into pieces and send everybody in the countryside. So that's the right-wing reading, so that actually means we can do nothing. Uh, the paradoxical left-wing reading is something that Walter, I hope he will not mind me repeating that story, told me that when he was presenting his book in China, uh, of course, there was, a, you know, a large chapter has to do with cultural evolution and with a particularly great leap forward. But there was an older gentleman who sat in the audience who was then very sort of, you know, affirmatively shaking his head and sort of confirming Walter's point. And then he said, you see, that only revolution can bring inequality down. <laughs> so that was the left-wing reading. Okay, some, some more questions. Uh, there's a woman there with hand up in the middle. Thank you very much for a really interesting talk. Um, my question relates to alternative measurements of income inequality. And please excuse me if I understood you incorrectly, but I think towards the beginning of your talk, you said that the differences between... The different, that the differences were 
falling, even though the differences remain very large between countries, and that that was, was what motivated migration. But this would be using the relative Gini coefficient rather than absolute inequality. And I've read a few chapters of your book, and I found very little on the absolute Gini, which, according to Anand and Siegel in their 2015 paper, has actually soared since 1970. So my question is what your thoughts are on the absolute Gini and the importance of considering it, as recently pointed out by Revalian and also by Atkinson. Okay, a couple more questions. Thank you for your presentation. Very briefly, how do you see uh, these changes panning out with regard to climate change and the rise of a global middle class? Thank you. And one more over here somewhere. Yeah, the blue shirt. Um, is global inequality a problem you see, uh, the one that governments should be tackling? And if so, what can they best do to tackle it? Okay. 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 Uh, okay, I will be briefer, hopefully now. Uh, Absolute. I, yeah, I do mention it in my book. There is one box even on that. I, of course, am aware of that. You know, it is, I'm against uh, absolute measurements. And I'm against absolute measurements because it's a no-brainer that when actually you have a large increase in the pie, the differences in income are going up when you measure them absolutely are going to increase. So it is, I think, uh, we have to be conservative in measurement of inequality. If we measure it absolutely, we are conflating two things. We are conflating the growth of differences which come simply from the pie getting larger from really increases which are in, uh, in relative terms. And to give an example, it's essentially it's like you're having a balloon with, and you put like sort of points on that balloon, and then I blow the first small balloon and then you blow it. So the relatives the relative distances stay, of course, the same, but the absolute increase. And the problem with absolute is that you would actually find these absolute increases always when the economy is getting richer. And if I were to actually to say that U.S. inequality went up between 1950 and 1970, which it did in absolute sense, and it went up also now under, uh, you know, uh, uh, Clinton and first Reagan and Clinton, I think I would be really having a narrative which, which is... Uh, how should I say, self-constraining. Now, I'm not saying that we should not, and actually I discussed large uh, absolute increases, and I, when I mentioned even today, when I said if you were to take only the, 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 the new, newly created value added in the world and to divide it between who, I mean, who got what part, then you find overwhelmingly that it went into the hands of the top 1% or top 5%. So I'm in favor of that, but I think using absolute as the key measure, in my opinion, is sort of could be misleading, and I think that actually it would, uh, uh, it would seem at first that it's actually uh, good because we are showing that the large distances are becoming larger, but in reality would be to some extent, I think, uh, how should I say, not disreputable, but would actually uh, uh, make our case weaker because our case on a rising inequality is stronger if it's based on a very conservative measure that is relative. So that's on that. Um, 
On climate change, that's an excellent question. I have not done the work. I know there is actually now work being done on that. Uh, uh, Luca Chancel and, and Thomas Piketty and I think actually other people have done that. Uh, uh, clearly, if the, and again, this is something that you certainly know better than I, but clearly if you have large increases in the global middle class, which then uh, uses the patterns of consumption of people who are maybe today globally upper middle class, then the question becomes whether it is sustainable and what it implies for the world as a whole. But I would actually like to, to put here an interesting sort of a reflection on this, because this may be uh, on prima facie a bad thing, because actually how, do you, actually how are you going to have a sustainable development? On the other hand, the growth of the global middle class is prima facie a good thing although we are not quite sure in what sense it is a good thing, because we actually, for the nation-state, we have some logic going back to Lipset and modernization theory and so on, why middle class is good. Uh, but for the world, it's something new. Uh, so uh, that global middle class has no political power as such because there is no governance structure at the world level. So I think these are two interesting issues, but I think we have to, to take them more seriously because precisely because of the growth of the global, so-called global middle class, because they are still very poor by Western uh, standards. Uh, uh, gov government, how it should tackle. Now, that, of course, is a very difficult question, but I have, I believe that, uh, I will put it in brief as possible way. I believe that uh, the, the standard 20th century measures that reduced inequality, which was taxation, trade unions, social transfers, education, have all come to a position where actually we cannot expect big bang for a buck in the future. And I will not go why each of these four, I believe, has kind of reached that limit. So I think an alternative approach, which is maybe a more difficult or it's over the long term, is an attempt to equalize endowments, not to equalize, but to make them more, uh, less unequal. So what I call equalization of endowments. Now these endowments come under two forms. One is human capital, which is, of course means that access to education has to be broader in the usual story about education, but a little bit with a twist because I think that, that particular equalization of endowments would imply much bigger role for public sector education than for private, where we actually have now in some extent uh, 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 reproduction of income and wealth differences because of extremely high cost of private education. But second part is uh, reducing inequality in uh, assets. You know, it has, been, it has been generally little noticed that the Gini coefficient of uh, uh, distribution of income from capital or distribution of wealth, for that matter, has remained extremely high. Where we, when you look at household survey data and look at the income from wealth, which is actually underestimated at the top, you still find a Gini of about 90. So all countries basically have Gini's between 85 and 95, and that number has not changed. So I think, I'm not saying that it would be easily done. I think that there are possibilities. Tony Atkinson mentioned, for example, the grants which would be given to people at 21 years of age. There is a possibility also of employee stock ownership plans. There are, you know, possibilities of much broader ownership 
of stocks, for example, giving tax advantages to small uh, investors rather than giving them as we currently have them to the uh, uh, giving loopholes to the rich people. So in other words, I think there, there are ways to do that, but whether my suggestions are good or bad doesn't really matter. What I think important part is equalization of human and, and uh, uh, financial assets. Because, and last point on that, if you have more equal distribution of assets, then you don't need a huge machinery of state to redistribute current income in order to compensate those who actually start with very low income. So in other words, technically, you could actually, if you have fairly equal distribution of human capital and financial assets, you might not have, you might not need to have taxation that is uh, extremely high. So that's the, the, that's the point on the, on the recommendations. There you go. We've got about 10 more minutes left. Um, you've been trying to get for a while, yeah, at the back, in the, in the jackets. It seems I've convinced everybody, so there is nothing else. To... <laughs> Uh, so, I'm Patrick Gallagher. Um, you said that um, the US, because of the sheer size of its economy, had a massive effect on uh, global inequality. And so, um, my question is... I'm sorry, where are you? I cannot actually... I have to see you first. I'm, I'm, I'm here. Uh, okay. Uh -huh. um, so, so, my question is, um, do you think that some of Donald Trump's policies, for instance, you know, he, um, he recently pulled the US out of the Paris climate uh, deal, you know, to kind of revive... Um, the U.S. industry a little bit. So do you think his policies would have any effect on inequality in the U.S. or indeed globally? Okay, and uh, front here, uh, Jane. Hi, could you speak about the availability of sex desegregated data to give oh, us a yeah. truer picture of the gender Im implications of what's happening globally? Thank you. Anyone more? Yeah, in the green behind. Thanks. Um, Patrick Williams, Australian National University. Uh, just a question about the uh, distribution of human, human capital. Um, so Richard Reeves, Brookings Institution, recently published a book on uh, opportunity, opportunity hoarding, particularly that the sort of top, top um, parts of society not only accumulate wealth but, but also um, educational opportunities and things like that to the exclusion of others. And just, just wanted your, your thoughts about that, how how we might deal with that. Okay, on, on Trump, I, I would have been surprised if Trump had not come up as a topic. So, uh, 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 I, uh, when I did my book, and actually if you look at the chapter four, actually I saw the two sort of, uh, not originally because other people have seen the same thing, uh, two reactions to that. One is plutocratic reaction, another is, is populist reaction. Uh, plutocratic, in my view, meant basically there would be sufficient power of money to essentially steamroll over whatever popular opinion is to select politicians to elect, rather politicians who would follow the policies and just to ignore everybody else. And the populist is quite well known, so I don't need to define it. What I find interesting in, uh, in Trump is that actually he, to some extent, has combined these two strengths. And uh, he has, if you look at what he proposes to do, he is proposing to do, of course, protectionist measures, negotiation of the NAFTA agreement and all of that, uh, anti-China policies, all this, which seems to be the populist wing. And then he proposes to do a reduction of taxation, deregulation of uh, uh, 
uh, uh, uh, oil, oil uh, drilling and all of that, which is really very much pro-top 1%. I believe, uh, to, first to be quite honest, I really believe this administration, in my opinion, is really hand-to-mouth administration. So I don't think that actually they know even what will happen next Tuesday. So I, I you know, it's, uh, so we discuss it in some kind of a grand scheme as if it was some huge ideologically well thought out uh, thing, and I think it's not. I think it's really basically whoever decides on what evening to do what. Uh, so uh, 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 that's what I think about that administration. But I think that if, if they do something, I think it would be more likely to be the latter, which means it would be policies that would actually exacerbate inequality in the U.S. So I would not be surprised that actually inequality goes up because I think in the first, uh, po- in the, the first uh, uh, layer of policies that are populist, I think they are much more difficult to implement and that some of them, not only if you were to reverse them, they would actually affect some of the people who were from the top who were his supporters. And this diffuse support which was existed at the bottom is much more difficult politically to be expressed when the president is in, in, the, in the office. So I think he would have an inequality increasing impact. On the gender, unfortunately, the data that I have does not, uh, they, they don't allow the, the composition by gender because, by their own construction because uh, inequality within the household is assumed zero. For me, household is like an atom. There is nothing sort of inside of it. The only way that I can see it is for the cases where you have a single, uh, like single parent households and things like that. But other than that, inequality really is not, uh, uh, I cannot tease it out which doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I'm saying it is by construction hidden, as it were, inside the, the, the household. And, of course, as you know, there are studies that show, of course, inequality, but they, they are much more detailed. And I'm really working here with one variable across all the countries. So it's very narrow because I don't even have, I think that we would actually probably would be able soon to have a joint distribution of income and, and, uh, and uh, education. But still now it's very narrow because it's basically unvariable. Uh, on human capital intergenerational, I'm, I'm totally in agreement with what you said and actually the quote that you mentioned because I think what is happening, again, it has been written quite a lot in the U.S. I think U.S. is a more extreme example of what's happening in Europe and elsewhere is that you had a, a people who have been able uh, to... Uh, uh, whether they, they came from maybe upper middle class or whatever family, but they've been able to actually increase the advantage that they had by, of course, going to very good schools, getting very good jobs, saving money, becoming investors, getting uh, uh, their uh, part of their income in shares. So we now have, as actually we have seen in the results, and actually I'm quoting here a paper, unpublished paper by Christoph Lackner and Tony Atkinson, which shows that actually if you look at the U.S. income distribution, uh, the, uh, and if you look at the top 10% by uh, labor, uh, their, their participation in top 10% by capital has been rising. In other words, we see more and more of people who are capital-rich and labor-rich. So it's a very interesting phenomenon. Actually, I mentioned it a little bit in a paper that I did in a book which is called After Piketty, is that we are rarely seeing a, a sort of a different capitalism than before. I mean, this sort of prototypical capitalism of the Marx sort of variety is workers have only income from labor, capitalists have only income from capital, all the capitalists are richer than all the workers, end of story. It's very simple. 
And, uh, but I think there was some uh, validity to that simplification. But nowadays we have rich people who are both capital rich, as I said, and labor rich. And I think what, hap- what is happening now is that they are uh, sort of uh, conveying that advantage in both capital and labor to their children. And I think in that sense it will become more entrenched and I think more difficult to deal because there is so-called meritocratic element to it. And when you actually see people who are actually having large incomes, you don't know if maybe 80% comes from shares that are being distributed or bonuses or maybe only 20%. So I think it is fundamentally more difficult to deal with that politically uh, and I think that there will be a greater transmission of that wealth uh, over, the, over generations. Okay, I think we've got time for one last round of questions. If I think they were later. Uh, thank you for a fantastic lecture. Um, you talked earlier about how in the future the population of sub-Saharan Africa is going to vastly increase and that can act as a drag on global medium income. Um, do you think there's any way that we can still harness the growth potential of these economies or that the divergence has been too great? And do you think Western economies have a responsibility to assist in the process? Um, just one? Okay, more? I think that's the last one. Thank you very much for your lecture. My name is Giulia Porino. I work for Finance Watch in Brussels. Okay, here. Good. Okay. Peak of the pyramid. I cannot hear unless I see. Sorry. Uh, so you mentioned before the equal distribution of financial assets as an important thing to be tackled. Um, I'm guessing if you have any thoughts about how to achieve it with the current financial logic, also considering the capital flows that we are having now. Thank you. Okay, on, on Africa, okay, that's actually, I'm very, well, I should say, I'm very glad and not glad that you asked this question. I'm glad because I think Africa gets underrepresented uh, and understudied in income distribution studies. Uh, there are many reasons, lack of data. Actually, uh, ironically, it's the most difficult part of the world to study. I actually worked on uh, harmonization many years ago when I was much younger, harmonization of the data from four African countries over two time periods. And it was a nightmare because of the large component of uh, home consumption, which needs to be imputed. So you have to actually impute values to that. If you have a fully monetized economy, that's an economy's dream because actually all transactions are monetized, everything is recorded, you have really no worries. It's actually a fully commodified economy is a phenomenal for study. Uh, but the economies where you have a large segment that is not commodified or commercialized are much more difficult. And I think it's part of the reason why Africa is much less studied. Another part is that there are fewer household services. Now, what will happen in the future is also something that, uh, for me, as I said, I'm glad that you asked this question because uh, also in my own knowledge, <coughs> I'm actually definitely uh, suffering from lack of knowledge on Africa. And I think we talk about Africa as it was a homogeneous entity, which it is not. And we have very different, you know, countries. We have now Ethiopia, which is having growth rates which are paralleling Chinese growth rates. And we have countries that are like Congo, for example, which is not in war now, but actually uh, has now income which is lower than the 1960s. So we have really all all, uh, different countries. But really what will happen in Africa, as I said before, would determine quite a lot what will happen to the income distribution, global income distribution data. Now, do the rich countries have a a responsibility? Uh, That's kind of a complicated issue, but I think they have... uh, 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 how should I say, well uh, understood self-interest 
And I believe the European Union has a well-understood self-interest in doing or helping Africa simply because of the migration issue. Because I think that's the issue that is going to be with us for 100 years. I'm not, I think, exaggerating. And I always like to point out to people that the gap relative, and forget about the absolute, between the northern and the southern shore of Mediterranean has never been larger than now in history. We never had a difference of like 8 to 1 or so between the northern and southern shore of the Mediterranean. So uh, if you believe migration is responding to economic incentives, then Europe, I think, has self-interest to help Africa. Um, and now, how would financial uh, equalization of financial assets uh, be feasible? Of course, it's a difficult issue. You know, no less of a person than Margaret Thatcher talked about uh, people's capitalism. But you know, uh, and I remember in those days uh, when I used to read when I used to read the Economist, they actually talked about that for a while, and then the whole term disappeared and was never mentioned again because really nothing much happened. And I think it is a difficult issue, and people have mentioned many times that, you know, people with modest means do not have first the knowledge or interest to, to be investors uh, because they are, of course, afraid also that they are going to lose all the money they have and they have no incentives and so on. But I believe that if you had, I will not go into the details that I don't know well enough, but if you had um, guaranteed, for example, minimal returns, so in that sense that you would never lose your capital if you're a small investor, you might not actually make money, but at least you are not going, you have a floor that you're not going to lose. I think there would be greater sort of incentive for people of modest means to save and to, you actually, to redistribute or reduce the inequality in the distribution of income, but, uh, of, I'm sorry, of capital. But I don't think it's, it's easy to do, but although over the medium term, which means like half a generation or one generation, I think it is something that is technically feasible. After all, you know, just last point, the, the, the rich people who are actually have implemented, particularly in the U.S., all this panoply of different tax schemes for themselves took a long time and billions of dollars in lobbying to implement that. So, you know, to actually, it took them also 20 years to move from the situation when Reagan was saying how it is unfair that capital is more tax than labor to a situation now when labor in the U.S. is taxed at 40 percent and capital is taxed at 12 percent. You know, so it took them 25 years to, or 30 years to do that. Okay, well I think this is actually, of all the LSE lectures I've been to recently, this has won the prize in terms of succinct questions and succinct answers. So uh, thanks, thank you, thanks to all of you. Okay. Can I just remind you that uh, there will be a book signing, so if any of you want to buy a copy of Branko's book, it will be outside in the lobby, and I think the idea is he'll stay on the stage and you need to bring it back. No, no, it's Branko will be coming to the front. Oh so can we thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.